the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts Ed Lay and Thomas Mulhern, this is Global Denmark. Hello and welcome to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working to create a better Denmark and a better world. We have the pleasure of sitting down with John Lees, former managing director of ABS UK and the director of Global Impact Denmark. In this wide-ranging conversation, we explore a variety of subjects, including the true meaning of sustainability, the responsibility of individuals and companies to improve our world, how companies can use sustainability to differentiate in the marketplace, and the impact of being globally mobile. Without further ado, we bring you John Leeds. Okay, I am here with my co-host, as always, Thomas Mulhern and John Lees. Hey, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me here. Oh, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to dive right in. What is Global Impact? Okay, Global Impact, a company formed a couple of years ago now, it sets itself the brief of explaining to small to medium-sized companies what they should be doing to begin the sustainability journey and the steps that need to be taken to achieve achieve those goals. The goal being sustainability, and sustainability is measured by benefiting what we call the triple bottom line. So inside a business, instead of targeting yourself to make profit, you target yourself to make profit to benefit people in one form or other and benefit the planet. So that's our brief. Sustainability is a huge buzzword at the moment, right? Everybody is looking towards sustainability. But what mistakes are we making and what misconceptions are there around what sustainability is? Initially, there's a great deal of confusion, particularly amongst companies that have up to about 500 employees, as to what is sustainability and what is CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. Sustainability is actually a very, very simple concept. The, the essence of it is to make sure that the business and its people and its processes operate in a way that impacts positively on the people, on people generally, maybe the communities outside the business or indeed the people who work inside the business and on the planet, the environment. And if those happen, then in fact that company is deemed to be operating sustainably. It's actually that simple. John, maybe we could uh, rewind a little bit. I know a lot of people are interested in sustainability. It's a nice buzzword for some companies. But what what drives someone to actually get into the sustainability game like you are? How did this emerge? It's a pretty long journey, actually, Tom, in that um, I, many years ago, I'm 61 years old now, but when I was uh, young, had long hair, and I was slim, um, I, I spent a lot of time traveling in places like India and Pakistan, uh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, pretty well the whole of Asia. And I, I was always patently aware that there was a difference between the society I'd come from, the UK, and where I was traveling, and actually where I felt very much at home. And um, it, it kind of started a dialogue in my head that was really about if I can somehow 
make this place or these places that I've grown to love in India and Pakistan, places like that, if I can help these countries become become more developed in a way that they would like development to be, not the way that we as interesting white guys would like them to have development. Really, then when I went back to the UK after seven, eight years of fairly heavy travelling, I then started the business, which is still live today. I, I no longer have a commercial interest in it, but it thrives today. But a key focus for that business was always on corporate social responsibility before the term corporate social responsibility had been invented. And that might have been helping the local, uh, the local clinic where seriously ill children were actually being treated, or indeed, as it eventually became in 2009, um, helping at an orphanage in Sri Lanka to help children who lost everything. They'd lost their parents, lost their home, they'd lost every means of support. What I focused on very, very hard inside that business was making sure that the company's profit, some of that profit, went into these corporate social responsibility projects. What I then made the transition from is from just this pure corporate social responsibility, CSR, which is very much about, I exaggerate a little here, but being philanthropically good. That was not enough um, because the planet is screwed. There are millions and millions of tons of crap floating in the ocean somewhere. You can get on trains in, in India and there's, there's garbage everywhere. And there has to be a solution to that. And the solution to that, in my opinion, governments and the United Nations are not delivering. And I think it's down to citizens to resolve that problem. And that can be resolved by being more sustainable and the actors in the sustainability environment are you and me, us guys, and us girls, but also businesses, because they have big pockets, and big pockets can provide bigger solutions. And by those two, those two parts of society, you know, the civic society people and businesses, if they work in the same direction, just vaguely in the same direction, in the most amateurish of ways, it doesn't matter. Do a bit, and businesses can do that. And therefore, Global Impact came onto the scene to really guide companies that are totally and utterly confused as to how they should begin and how they undertake this journey. It's a mystery. It seems like you're kind of circling in on two fundamental questions. One, what is the role of a company? Is it not to create profitability? And two, who has responsibility with regards to sustainable development? Is it the individual citizens or the government? And I can hear you have clearly some viewpoints on that. I do indeed. The fact is that, or, or it seems to me anyway, it's not a fact, it's an opinion, that governments have to operate on so many levels that in fact to deal with maybe the most important issue of today is in all probability beyond any, any individual government to do. And it also seems to me that an awful lot of the electorates in all these different countries actually don't listen. They actually don't care what the government has to say anymore. Mm. You see it here in Denmark where there seems to be a slow eroding of the social contract between people and the state. You see it in the UK through the crisis of Brexit. It exists in France. It's really very live in India at the moment between the Indian, the Indian middle class and the, the ordinary Indian who literally lives on the street. 
So for me, governments are, are actually not the answer. They can give some guidance, but there's not enough money and there's not enough manpower and time and commitment inside state authorities to be able to fix that. And therefore, I think it's only reasonable to say, well, if they don't, who does? And I think there are only two options. And it's either you as an individual or it's these companies as institutions. And I think by those two working together, there will be a solution. But without those two working together, the state will not do it. And how can companies then, on the other side of that, who are working towards profitability, and if your focus is on small and medium-sized enterprises, I can imagine that if you're a small or medium-sized enterprise, you're just you're trying to build, you're trying to grow and grow, and you're thinking, okay, I don't, I don't have the money to set aside or the time or the resources for these extra goals of sustainability. I'm just trying to, to make it and grow. Yeah. How do you talk with companies about that narrative? Well, it usually begins on a, on a very reasonable level, a very balanced okay. level, where we, we talk about the experience that we've seen with companies that turn over you know, from 100 million kroner up to a billion, billion and a half kroner. And all of those companies start at that exact point. Um, are we able to set aside our profit? Is this not just tax? Is someone not just going to take this money away from my bottom line while I'm trying to make sure the company survives? Mm. And through quite often confrontational conversations, we make the point that to survive and thrive from now onwards and to make profit, you have to be sustainable. I don't mean that in a dictatorial way, you know, I'm banging on the table saying this is the future. And the point I'm making is, is that, and I've seen it with so many case studies, that companies that begin the journey and start to think sustainable and build sustainability, the definition we talked about earlier, they build that sustainability into the business, they make more profit. Okay, so there's a direct correlation between... That's the point. I mean, why, is the, why do they make more profit? The central point is, first of all, they demonstrate to their customers and, far more importantly, potential customers, that they are to be trusted. It's a key differentiator. And by, by being different, you become interesting. You become actually more trustworthy, for sure. If you talk about your business doing these sustainable things for these reasons, that is a business that certainly as a customer I would at least want to listen to. Whereas if I'm the guy saying, I have a glass here and it cost me five krona, I want to sell it to you for ten krona because I want a burger, it just doesn't cut it. Sure. And in fact, what you've just described, that's the conventional model. Um, obviously, I exaggerate it. You know, customer care, interest of the customer, partnership with customers... Those are all very important issues for businesses. But when you're trying to grow your business, and this is where the increased profit issue actually comes in, is that if you want to grow your business, you have to go and take other people's customers. Yeah. That's the case for 90% of businesses anywhere in the world. And to do that, there has to be a really good reason for those customers to move from where they are, the devil they know, to the devil they don't know. Right. And one of the key indicators of that is by establishing credibility and trust. 
and credibility and trust is not always, but invariably is a kind of element to sustainability because it shows that you care. If you look after the planet and you look after the orphanage down the road and if you do all the good things, surely will you not, are you not more than likely to look after this new customer very, very well? And that's the differentiator. I'm sure that for it to be a clear differentiator, there has to be some level of authenticity in it, that you're not just checking off a box because it's been government mandated, but there's something in the DNA of the organization that really speaks to this. Absolutely. I mean, I think everyone's familiar with the word of greenwashing. You know, I, I no longer let plastic bottles come into my house, therefore I am the best householder in the world. And of course, all of that is tosh. None of that is true. It's about actually beginning with understanding what it is you can achieve and what you should achieve and then putting plans in place to make it happen and then to test it and analyse results. Without those things, it's then greenwashing. It's just an interesting conversation, but it means nothing. Yeah. And do companies start by measuring their impact to begin with? What's the negative impact they're having? And then do you help them with with actually seeing the negative impact that they're having? And then, obviously, you can't move away from a place until you know where that place is, right? Yeah. This concept of benchmarking is, is really critical. The yeah. starting point of, of the sustainable journey, sustainability journey, is to understand what good you do and what harm you do as a business and be upfront about that. And that is often a very, very uncomfortable conversation to have. Yeah. But it's, it's actually the only place to start. And are there five, are there ten key things that you're looking for when you walk into a company? Are they doing X, Y, Z? Actually, no. I re- in fact, I really wish there were. Yeah. Every single business is as unique as every individual that you will ever meet. Different eyes, different hair, different height. Everything's different. And therefore, every single audit that we do, this series of analyses that takes four or five days up to 15 days, it's to understand the business and the people in it and the people that drive it. It's only when you understand that and you understand then the peculiarities, the uniqueness of the harm that they do and the good that they do, only then can you start plotting a journey towards this sustainability goal. So, short answer, I wish there was a simple set of five tests or ten tests. There isn't. There must be an interesting conversation to be had once you outline the harm that's being done and how that could affect their core business and the ensuing decisions that they're Yeah. For us, interestingly, the uncomfortable conversations we have are actually around the questions we need to ask. Okay. So that's where people start to feel uncomfortable as, you, as, as they become aware that you're looking at things that yeah. maybe they don't want to talk about. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a criminal way, just, you know, there's certain things about businesses that everyone would rather not sit around and discuss openly. Some advice I was given by my father many years ago, a problem shared is a problem halved. And the moment that you're in a position whereby it's out there on the table and and we know what is not good for the planet, that's the first step of looking at providing a solution. What gets measured gets managed. It's that crucial first step too, to being open towards criticism and being open towards growth. Of course it is. How can we help these countries that need to develop or want help to develop? How do we impact them most? 
where do we direct our dollar kroner most, most effectively? If I may say so, it's, it's actually the wrong question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the have that <laughs> in the 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 question is not about any longer about how we help them because actually they are helping themselves. They are Indians are very good or and will become increasingly good at fixing their own problems, and the Chinese will do the same, and you know the other former colonial countries. So they will fix their problems. It's how we create problems that then impact on them. So, for example, a great big lake measuring goodness knows how many millions and millions of tons of plastic floating around in the middle of the, the Pacific is in fact a fundamental problem for everyone, be they in India or Pakistan or a little village in, in Yulan or indeed anywhere else on the globe. And we put it there. By we, I mean people, irrespective of whether we're Indian or British or Dane, it, it, it doesn't matter. We put it there. So fix it. And I think the resources of la very large enterprises, the United Nations, governments, they have the capacity to be able to attack big fixed problems such as that. But sitting below that global issue is that individuals and companies are adding to that stockpile of plastics problems that damage our sustainability as a species. For me, it's as fundamental as that. It's about the survival of my children and my grandchildren. And for individuals and for organisations, be they small businesses with 10 people in it or larger businesses with 500 people in it, there are simple changes that they can make to the way that they work that will impact on the future sustainability of this planet for my children and my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren. And actually, that's the point. It's the individual things that we can do. Are people starting to buy into this idea more and more? I mean, do you still get conflict uh, with, um, sorry, I, I don't see this problem the same way you do? Or... Less and less. I mean, I was at a presentation, uh, let me see, a couple of weeks ago to 20, 25 business leaders, and uh, three of them were quite clearly on the board and pretty well retired. And two of them were very confrontational and, and said, it's nonsense, it doesn't exist. What and doesn't exist? Climate change, plastic problems, sustainability, it's just a marketing thing. And I don't believe any of it. There isn't a problem, and therefore there's no need for a, for a sustainability fix. And I kind of expected that I would have to engage in an argument. But in fact, it was beautiful because I was silent. Because the other people in the room were the people that carried the argument. Yeah. So there were two or three people saying, this whole sustainability, climate disaster, earth disaster thing is nonsense. And 22 people turned on them and said... It isn't like that. This is the reality. There's something called science that shows us. <laughs> but it wasn't even a question of science. It was a question of, of, of business economics also. Some of these right. old boys, and literally they were white, male and old. Yeah. It was really beyond their experience. And therefore they closed their eyes to it and they challenged it. But of course, other people in the room from 30 years old up to 50 years old, for them it's now. And there are so many events taking place today. You know, the demonstrations you see all across Europe about the climate crisis, you know, businesses reacting the way that they do. Fortunately, that view 
is pretty well dead. And we find with the businesses we talk to, we don't have to convince them that sustainability exists as a need. The only thing we have to do is convince them that sustainability exists as a need to make more money. Hmm. That's the challenge for us. So we are in a developed nation, obviously Denmark here, and uh, has a reputation of being pretty good with regards to sustainability when we compare it to the rest of the world. What's your impression of Denmark in Danish companies? In the larger sector. So in businesses that are mature, they're either national or they are global. I'm talking about the mesks and, and, and businesses like that. They're on it. And actually, they're damn good at it. And there are, there are projects that, that companies like Mesk get involved in that really shine a light on, on what can be done. Hmm. And businesses that have been traditionally been criticised, like Carlsberg, for example, they're also on it. They're on a really interesting journey driven by really motivated people, including the very, very top executives inside those businesses. They're on a great journey. Yeah, they have that new special glue, so they don't have to use plastic. In a way, they're bigger than countries, right? Yeah, Money. of course they have. These are enormous institutions, yeah. and they have the spare capacity, cash, they have that to be able to do these things. But there is still the feeling amongst many small to medium-sized businesses that, in fact, if I exaggerate to illustrate my point here, they've got loads of money, they can do that. I'm just little me, and I've only got a spare X thousand or a million kroner. I can't afford to do that. And, of, of course, the resources to be able to tackle the sustainability issues and not just about money. They're about man-hours. And in a small to medium-sized business, there are not spare man-hours. Everyone's frantically on the bicycle trying to keep going to make the next dollar to be able to pay the next wage bill and all the other costs that business have. Isn't it a macroeconomic question, too? There's that argument, that, oh, I'm just, I have this amount of people, I can't make a difference. But actually, if enough people do that, it changes the market in terms of supply and demand, and then you can actually enact change. If we bring it down to a really, really tiny level, I was taught by my father that if there's trash in the street, you pick it up. I didn't put it there, but I've got to pick it up. So I've had a policy, which many of my Danish friends find quite astonishing, that I pick up a minimum of two pieces of litter of trash every single day and I put it in a bin. And it's about that kind of solution. But for a business, obviously it's not about two pieces of litter. But it's about doing something. Something is better than nothing. Me putting two pieces of trash in a bin makes no difference to the environmental health of Copenhagen in any way, shape or form. But I'll tell you what, it's better than nothing. I want to pivot a little bit, John. Cool. You obviously are here in Denmark, and you're not from Denmark. Maybe you could tell a bit about your integration journey, being a a Brit coming to Denmark, and what influence that's had on you. I came here, to be fair, because of love. I was uh, single. Part of the club. We're all on the same Uh, visa. Absolutely. (laughs) The love visa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I was uh, involved with uh, a project in Sri Lanka, which is an orphanage for uh, children who lost their parents in the tsunami, in the Boxing Day tsunami. And... um, so I was over helping out and I was using one of my businesses to raise funds for a particular project, which was about putting solar panels on the roof of an infirmary inside this uh, orphanage. And uh, I was staying in a tiny little guest house in the middle of nowhere 
and surrounded by people, Sri Lankan people, who are delightful and caring. And quite often, a particular couple of the guys and one of the ladies who worked there were really worried that I was lonely. So every time a single female traveller came through, they were there to say... We know a guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, Do you know John? <laughs> yeah. And literally, this would happen... Wow. a collective one, wingman. And once every two or three weeks. And then, as interesting, aside one day, a friend of mine, a guy called Yapa Arachi, um, a Sri Lankan guy, he, he came to me and said, look, tomorrow there is a very beautiful French lady who will come and stay at this guest house. And I think you will like her. So the following day, I introduced myself to this French lady who turned out to be Danish. Because it's such similar. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think if you're from Sri Lanka, then you know, a French accent, a Danish accent, it's all it's the, same. Same. It's the, same. Um, it's the same. And that's how I came to be in Sri Lanka. Oh, and wow. we are now married. Yeah, married, came back to Denmark. And how long have you been in Denmark now? A couple of years. Okay. And what are your takeaways from coming to Denmark? The two things that I think I'm impressed with are the sociability. I, I read a great deal before I came here about, you know, Danes are reserved, they're not particularly friendly. Um, you know, all those, despite Hugo and all of those things, that it, you will feel isolated. And I feel none of that. Absolutely none. I think maybe being from the north of England where I'm famed amongst my friends for getting on the metro and talking to someone within... 35 seconds. But also, I live in the in uh, Nebro, the part of, of, of Copenhagen, where there are wonderful immigrant communities. I've got friends who are Turks from Pakistan and places like that, and they make me feel very, very much at home. So I think the things are this, this kind of sociability that I suspect, Danes suspect they don't have. Mm. But in fact, they do. It's a really sociable place. And the other thing I take away, which I sell constantly to my family is that this is a, a country that lives outdoor. And if you can't love that, then it's time to give up, in my opinion. You have a bike? Um, no. Well, no, that's not true. I have a bike. I never use that bicycle in Copenhagen because that's one of my other observations. They're all mad. They scare the life out of me. You had one of those similar... One of I've still got a Christiania bike. No one can knock me off. I mean, I'm petrified. I don't understand the logic of cycling. But when I get out of Copenhagen then cycling is a dream, as is canoeing and walking and, yeah. you know, all the outdoor stuff. And, and swimming, by the way. And my first ever experience of swimming in the sea was here in Copenhagen in my first summer. And it wow. was delightful. It's just magnificent. I adore it. Did you do oh, the Vindabel, the winter bathing? No, I think we're back to madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, so there, there's a spectrum of madness you'll tolerate. <laughs> yes, absolutely. How's yes. your language learning going? It's coming on slowly, yeah. actually. I think I've suffered from, A, being 61 years old. Believe me, it's tougher learning a new language when you're 61. <laughs> Many years ago, I lived in Thailand, which is a hell of a language to learn. And I was 28, 29 years old. And by the time I was 30, I was fluent. Oh. Um, that was great. Danish is infinitely more difficult. But I think also... I was young, I was free, and all those things that you have as a, as a young guy. So learning languages then was easy. Learning Danish is more difficult because I have responsibilities. Global impact is on a journey, and I have to commit to that. So instead of having my 11 hours of Thai lessons a week, I somehow squeeze in two hours, and that's not enough. But it comes along slightly. A little bit out of time. You'll get there. Yeah. It takes time.
I think this is a perfect opportunity to break, and we'll be right back with a quick fire round. Cool. We are back with today's guest, John Lees. John, welcome back. Thank you. I'm going to dive right in. Do you have any habits, routines, or rituals that you do every day to maximize your performance? Is this a serious question that can I give you? That was a joke. No, no, that was a serious <laughs> No, no my, uh, my honest answer has to be tea. Tea is the kind of bedrock to my day. I wake up, usually pretty early, I have tea. And tea is the thing that I turn to. It calms me down. It makes me feel very much like I'm at home. It's the way I like to start my day, the ritual of tea. The tea strainer, the fresh tea, and then the waiting for it. It makes me actually feel a better person. Tea. And what type of tea? Oh, it's um, almost always Sencha green tea. Almost always. Japanese Sencha green tea, by the way. I've got a tin of it at uh, the, the studio, gifted by John, and we have we ceremonially share a pot while uh, while going through our, our routines, etc. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, what personality trait do you most wrestle with in terms of self-regulation? I think it's um, something I inherited from my mother that when the going gets difficult, I have to work very, very hard, very, very hard to resist the desire to fight. I don't mean physically fight, just fight back at whatever is causing me the problem that I'm in the middle of. I have the urge to take it on and fight. And quite often that has got me into scrapes that in fact I should, I should never have got myself into. That's the main one. So what's going on there? There's a threat, there's a fight, flight or freeze reaction. Yeah, absolutely. And you're choosing, choosing fights. And how do, you, how do you self-regulate in those situations now? I met maybe 15 years ago a quite remarkable lady called Pam Jackson. She gave an introduction to me of self-meditation and breathing techniques. And it's as simple as that. If I forget to breathe deeply and focus on breathing, then I usually get into an argument. And that really is the, is the control device. And it is a remarkable control device. I use breathing techniques too, for if it's anxiety or yeah. just getting centered. Find the breath that's been there the whole time and get back to the moment. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Fantastic. Have you had any one-off experiences or events that you would attribute to a huge leap forward in the type of person you've become or type of leader? Um, yeah, actually travel. And every experience I've had in this traveling journey, I was very lucky in the early days of my relationship with that lady who is now my wife, Camilla, we spent uh, four and a half months in a camper van in New Zealand traveling around. That for me was obviously a very, a very, uh, a deeply wonderful journey, you know, to, to have boots on and walk up hills and mountains. That was great. But the big learning event was to be surrounded by kids, by young men and young women, 17 to 25, doing great stuff really remarkable stuff traveling the way that I remember that I traveled when I was that age and that really for me was a 57 58 years old was one of the greatest learning experiences of my life because it's it's conventional I said before I'm 61 years old it's conventional amongst my peers to talk about kids as if they are to be dismissed 
But actually, the kids that I met, I just came away absolutely bowled over with admiration for them. And uh, so... Fantastic. Yeah. A reinvigorating experience. Oh, astonishing. I feel so hopeful. I've got a grandson who's now 13 years old, and I see from, from, from him through to the these kids I've met in India and Sri Lanka and, uh, and New Zealand and Australia. And I think, actually, I'm quite, quite hopeful about the world. Actually hopeful about the world that my generation worked really, really hard to screw up. <laughs> well, Gen Z's, let's go. Um, <laughs> if you were invited to a dinner party and you could invite two or three, as discussed, people from history, alive or dead, who would you invite? Oh, okay. I confess I've been asked this question before and for me I take individuals from different stages in my life from when I was a child 10 11 years old it has to be George Best a remarkable footballer a very damaged individual who died early through uh, alcohol and um, but he gave me such unadulterated joy that I just loved to have three hours sharing some food with him and listening to his observations on his life so he'd be the first the second would be a gentleman called Billy Connolly, a Glaswegian comedian. And he is uh, unique to me in that he is an observer and the teller of truth, no matter how brutal and uncomfortable that might be. And the third person, strangely, would be, bear in mind we're having dinner here, would be Jamie Oliver, the chef. So he's going to cook it all up. And no, no, we're going to let him sit down and he can, he can choose the wine. So that's what I'd do. And he, A, has a wonderful voice that I can listen to all day long. And he's an interesting guy. When I was asked this question before, and I gave the same answer, I went away to try to work out why those three people would be interesting to me. And actually, all those guys came out of really terrible adversity. George Best was born in Belfast into working class Belfast. And um, it, was a, it was a terrible upbringing. Billy Connolly, his first work was uh, in the shipyards. That's rough and tough and horrible. And he got out of that and announced only three or four years ago that in fact he was very badly sexually abused as a guy. Okay. So he's a survivor. And Jamie Oliver actually is exactly the same. The education system gave up on Jamie Oliver because he was dyslexic. Open brackets, you're stupid, close brackets. And uh, yet, the guy's the success that he is today. Fantastic. And I think those are interesting guys. I'd love to spend three hours with them. There's a place for one more. I want to go to that dinner too. So, yeah. Uh, that sounds like a good one. John, a little uh, pivot here. Is there something particularly weird about you? No, I'm dying to one, John. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know <laughs> Yes, I have, I have a terrible confession to make in that I, have, I inherited from my father passion for trains. My father always wanted to be a train driver, but being dyslexic, actually, he, never, he was never given the opportunity to be a train driver. But we used to go on train journeys all over the UK throughout the whole of my childhood. Just and hop on the train? and Yeah, hop on a train and go somewhere. The thought of going from A to B on a train... And the little adventures and observations and things you see that occur on that, on that journey are magical to me. And every chance I get, I have a car here in Copenhagen, I use the trains because they are beautiful. I love trains. Fantastic. It's like the, the Polar Express. Have you seen that movie? Yeah. Like the magical train. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, yeah. Absolutely. That's a, 
Fantastic. What piece of business advice or, or life advice, what was the best that you ever received? The best business advice mm-hmm. I actually picked up from uh, a lecture I went to with Anita Roddick, who was the uh, kind of giver of the advice on this day. And what she said was, if you can imagine it, it will be beautiful. Mm. I think she was talking about business, but actually... I think that's equally relevant in your own personal life. If you can imagine it, then there's a good chance it will be a beautiful thing. And I think that's a great maximum to try and hold when when you're in a dark place. And I could see how you could directly apply that with the line of work you're in, with sustainability and creating a, a better world for the future. Yeah, of course. Did you have a teacher, a mentor when you were growing up who had a huge influence on you? Yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, I was surrounded by a very poor but a, but a really great family and they were very influential, particularly my, my dad, my mum's father, my grandfather. But when I went off to university, I came across a guy called Roy May who taught uh, politics to me in the, the three years that, that, I was, uh, that I was at Coventry. And... Um, he was the mentor that I wish I'd had had I been a schoolboy because what he did, he made sure that I understood how to think as an academic rather than just to learn information, mm. how to process data and how to present an argument. And uh, I will always be grateful to Roy for taking the time and trouble to teach a working class kid with poor grades how to look at subjects and to analyse them and to explain them and those are all fundamental to everything that I do today. That's terrific. I think it's amazing. Ed. The more guests we talk to, uh, the a red thread is the poor students yeah. who become amazing people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. I'm seeing a thread. So there's hope for everyone <laughs> listening out there. If you're not doing well in school, it's going to be okay. Keep fighting, right? Yeah, it's the what, only way. Uh, what book or books have you either most gifted or been most influenced by? There are a whole raft of academics who who have taught me a great deal. But I think quite often books are... They're great if they teach, but in fact a great book transports. And for me it was Paolo Coelho's book, The Alchemist. That was mine too. Yeah. (laughs) And I actually bought the book at Piccadilly Railway Station in Manchester and I was on my way to Reading. It's about a five and a half hour train journey. And by the time I arrived in Reading for a very, very important meeting, I had 20 pages left. And I quickly dived past the person that was waiting for me with a little board that said Mr. John Lees. I walked straight past him, went into a pub. Poor guy. <laughs> and bought a pint. I never touched the beer, and I just went through it. And right at the end, if I can almost swear here, I was surrounded by four ladies having lunch, and I, I finished it, and I was not ready for the end. And I said, oh my God, because the ending was just astonishing. And that book took me on a journey that even now gives me goosebumps. I haven't read it yet, oh, but uh, I'm, I'm inspired by your description. Yeah. <laughs> it's astonishing. Wow. Okay, I got to read it. Yeah, because I remember you mentioned it too. Ed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a little mindful of our, our time here, and I want to wrap up the podcast today with one final question for you, John. That is, what, what is someone like you, who just arrived in Denmark a couple of years ago, What can you teach Denmark, and what do you think Denmark can still teach the rest of the world? I think, almost tongue-in-cheek, if I could teach Denmark to be a little more Yorkshire, I think Denmark would benefit from that. And what does that mean? Well, I (laughs) I can define it best by a comment made by my father. And he said, 
John, I will call a spade a spade, and if necessary, I will hit you with it. So it's about being blunt and about being direct. I think Denmark would benefit greatly from being a little bit more direct, particularly in the way that it conducts business. To be blunt, to call a spade a spade. But I think, conversely, taking that coin and flipping it over, one of the things that Denmark, I think, can show the world is that you can take time with your business. Don't rush. Think carefully about these things. And I see when I'm here that business operates at a slightly slower rate than it does in the UK. And actually, Denmark's better for that. And because what it does allow, I think, is generally a better work-life balance than I see certainly in the UK, than I see in the States, than I see in Canada. So I think that would be the key. And maybe that's a little bit of eager, isn't it? Indeed it is. Before we go, is there anything that you would like to promote or, or tell the audience or where they can find out more about you? I mean, Global Impact is hopefully a slightly memorable name and it's got .dk on the end, so if people want to come along to the website and have a look. But it's really not about Global Impact. The sustainability is not about Global Impact. Sustainability is about the companies that we work with and that what I quite like the people out there to be able to do is to ask the sustainability question of the companies that they work for and, and the companies that their businesses partner with and just get sustainability up the, up the agenda. That, for me, would be the thing I would want most. Fantastic. Well, um, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for coming in today, John, especially at such a short notice. I really enjoyed our, our conversation. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, John. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast and hit the subscribe button. Please give a rating or review to help us promote our podcast where we open up Denmark to the world and the world to Denmark. See you next week on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up your printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today. To access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.